On this program series, the Bridge Radio will be focusing on the externalization of EU borders policies. We will be discussing its implications and the effect and everyday consequences for refugees and migrants. Our aim on this series will be bringing out the voices of refugees and migrants that has been silenced, oppressed and traumatized around Europe and beyond it. The voices of activists who resist the oppression of anti-migration both inside and outside the borders of Europe as well as scholars who carry out research in the field. Today we live in a society where those rendered refugees and migrants by warfare, economic warfare and climate change are exploited, criminalized, stigmatized and live in a fear of detention and forced deportation. The externalization of EU border measures are happening around us fast and rapidly in a way that the EU citizens almost don't realize the implications of this bilateral trade and aid agreements between the EU states and third countries. This international relationship, bilateral trade and aid agreements, requires neighboring or third countries to secure the EU borders outside the EU states. This international relationship Bilateral trade and aid agreements requires neighboring or third countries to secure the EU borders outside the EU states. And this dramatically has increased the dangers for refugees and migrants' deaths on the Mediterranean Sea and across the deserts of North Africa. As researcher Mark Ackerman writes in Expanding the Fortress, this involves agreements with European neighboring countries to accept deported persons and to adopt the same policies of border control, improve trafficking of people and fortified borders as Europe. In other words, these agreements have turned Europe's neighbors into Europe's new border guards. And because they are so far from Europe's shores and media, the impacts are almost completely invisible to EU citizens. He further explains how in this militarization process, the arm and security industry has helped shape Europe border security policies and have reaped the rewards for ever more border security measures and contracts. In this new liberalization of borders and expansion of the border zones, it is the European military and security industry that have derived the most benefits of delivering much of the equipment and services for border security. On this program, we want to ask questions such as who profit from these policies of externalization of EU borders? How does it affect who is deportable and where? How does it affect zones of bordering? How do we resist these policies and which struggles are already taking place? How can we understand it as a continuation of colonial regimes? On this series, we will try to unfold these often hidden policies that is attached to this agreement and raise the voices of those affected. On this program series, we will try to decolonize and educate ourselves, activist groups and civil society. We want to understand how this system works. We will try to raise alternative solutions on this border regime. For the freedom of movement, and for the freedom to stay. The Bridge Radio.
Hello, this is the Bridge Radio once again today. Today we'll be bringing you an interesting program which is called Stop Killing Us Slowly. And today specifically we'll be talking about um, Castle Gold Detention Center, Chase Mark Detention Center. But we have to remind our listeners that previously where our programs were mainly focused on the, external, on, on the externalization of EU borders. But today, somehow we have to talk about what is happening within the EU. But in the past, we focused on the externalization. So talking about why we are trying to talk about this um, deportation centers of Kasogo and Shismak that has been existing in the last three to four years, in, in the last three years. Now, there is a report that has been made, or that, that was made during the time, during the last few years, which was called Stop Killing Us Slowly from the protest and the demand of 
also the right to have rights from the um, re residents or detainees in Kasogo and Shesmak in order to ask for the right to have rights. And um, today we try to focus on a little bit about that because today is going to be the uh, unveiling of this, um, this report. So on this occasion, we would like to um, go straight a little bit into the discussion about the criminalization and the detention of rejected asylum seekers and um, somehow open the discussion up about the critiques both of isolation and where, where it is very difficult to get from to get an access into these detention centers or into the part of logic of externalization so we try a little bit to unveil that and talk about the uh, human cost and implications also both for Europeans and also for the migrants themselves and today I am your one of your hosts Steve and uh, my colleague Nana I'm also your host today and, and um, yeah as Steve said we are going to talk about detention and deportation and the way we see that this is linked um, to the politics of externalization is that we see that there is this deportation turn in the, in, a, in European politics um, as part of the politics of externalization where countries receive money from the EU to take back deportees. So in that sense, the, the deportation camps in Europe is uh, very interchanged with this. And also we see that the, the way the deportation camps are made, it's also in a similar line of logic, as Steve said, that they are placed um, far away from any cities and where it's difficult to access. So it's creating this isolation. Um, but also it's as part of this isolation, it pu it's putting the camps in a way where it's becoming invisible to the, to the violence that's, that's happening. This is becoming invisible to the public, which we see is also one of the uh, ideas of externalization to make this um, not visible for the European public. And uh, today we would like to also highlight that the, these practices that it's not new, it has always been there. And uh, that we would like people to think more openly about the, 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 how these things affect both the residents or the uh, asylum seekers and the citizens. So in this program, the Bridge Radio will be bringing you interviews both on, from the people who made the report, uh, who are researchers who has been researching on the detention of um, uh, uh, de detention and deportation of refugees and migrants, and also we'll be talking to Annika, who was one of the persons who made the reports, and also one of the detainees in Shesmak now, with who has a kid who is living there. Her name is Shakira. And then finally, we'll bring you an interview with uh, Doctor. No, Professor Dr. Nikita, Nikita Dawan about uh, the rights to have rights, about, uh, br bringing some in connection with the talk about the deportation camps, some post-colonial critique, and talking about the um, colonial past and present, also from a German context. And it's important to say that these uh, the deportation camps that we are talking about, Schelsmark and Kasselgård, um, they are both camps that are placed in Denmark. Um, and before we will start the interview, we'll just give a bit of uh, context to understand these camps. So as Steve said, they are both new. 
recent institutions as a type of asylum institution in Denmark. Um, one, Sjælsmark, was opened in 2015 and Kæsudgård in 2016. In Sjælsmark, it's placed 30 kilometers from Copenhagen and it's uh, today housing uh, 150 rejected asylum seekers, including 70 children. So this is the deportation center for families. Um, the facilities where it's placed, it's in a military barracks and it's still in an active military training area where there's actually shooting exercising taking place on a regular basis around the camp. And it's not unusual to see military tanks passing by. So of course this creates a lot of stress for the people who are living there. Some of them who, some of the people uh, who also suffer from already post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and then Kjærsudgård, the other camp we were going to talk about today, it's um, it's placed in Jutland, um, and it's uh, currently housing something like 200 people. Uh, this is single people who are uh, had their asylum case rejected or who are on tolerated stays, stay. And this is also in a it's it's uh, in a former prison building. Um, where there is nine kilometers to the nearest city, so it means that, and this cannot be reached by public transport. And um, so, uh, and the next point about Kasugo and the rest of um, the detention centers is that the residents under this so-called motivation enhancement program, which is supposed to enable them to, uh, to help them to leave the mark which should push people in such of the way to deportation. This means that amongst other cases, no access to the workers, no access to work, no access to education, and you will not receive any money in these centers. So these are part of the measures or to make you to be able to leave Denmark or to enable you to leave Denmark. You're not allowed to make food and you have to eat in a canteen if you're cooking if you're coo if you have cooking equipment this will be confiscated by the police. You also have residence duty which means that you have to report to the police daily. Uh, and in Kasogo this happens through a biometrical key and there's limited access to health healthcare so it's only in case of real emergency. And then the whole thing is also that there's no limit to how long time you can stay in these centers. Um, as the head of the Shelsmark camp has expressed himself, it could potentially be indefinite. And um, organizations and institutions such as the Danish Helsinki Committee, Committee for Human Rights has described the conditions in the camp centers as being worse than the Danish prisons in several ways. So these are the two um, places we are going to be talking and focusing on today. And the first thing we will do is that we will be bringing you um will be bringing you an in, uh, interview yeah we'll be bringing you an interview with um uh, Shakira and uh, Annika who is uh, one of the re the researchers on on this field and um we'll also be playing you after some of the protests or before the interview the, um, some of the protests from 2015 and 2016 from Shesmark Uh, in that states stop killing us slowly and for the right to have right. Yeah, my good people, we are here today. <laughs> yes, 
about the report that you wrote that is called Stop Killing Us Slowly. In the report, you write that migrants become legally stranded in the detention and deportation centers. Can you elaborate on how your findings show that this happens? So basically, the departure centers, uh, they are quite a new configuration of a camp in Denmark. Um, they were opened up in 2015, since Mike, in 2016, that is Kesho we got. And uh, they're designed to house phase three asylum seekers, or people who receive the final rejection of their asylum case mm. um, and were threatened by deportation. And also people who had a criminal conviction, who are non-citizens and people on tolerated stay. Mm. And so basically the centers are set up to motivate or to put pressure on people to leave Denmark so-called voluntarily by enforcing intolerable conditions, as the Minister of Integration, Inge Stegberg, has put it. Mm. 
what we see in reality, however, is that this does not seem to have that obtained effect. And I think exactly what, what Shakira now said captures that so uh, extremely well that the situation has not changed. Mm. So what I heard from Shakira, she's been in Denmark for nine years and um, has been already deported and come back and been subjected probably to these motivation and health measures. Eight years Sorry. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's a long yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the situation is not likely to change. So what we uh, show and what we find in the report is that um, when we talk about legal, people who become legally stranded, uh, mm-hmm. that means that they are unable to stay in Denmark because they received a final rejection, so they have no possibility to obtain residence permit. Yeah. But they are also unable to move on. That is, they are unable to return to their countries of citizenship or origin, either because they uh, fear returning there mm-hmm. or because um, the country will not accept them and or because the Danish authorities cannot force them to leave. They're also prevented from leaving Denmark because uh, of this European regulation, which is called the Dublin Regulation, which means that as soon as somebody who claimed asylum in Denmark goes to another European country, mm-hmm. he or she will be immediately deported back to Denmark. So, in fact, people who um, are subjected to these motivation enhancement measures, who are um, forced to reside in Sassmark or Kesselvigård, um they become sort of stuck there where um in a, what we call a legal gray zone mm-hmm. um where they don't have a prospect of obtaining residence permits but they also don't have a prospect of being deported mm-hmm. and the legal strandedness really refers to the fact that this situation can go on forever um unless something radically changes when you talk about the 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 gray zone I myself also experienced some of these um, examples in Schismark because I was also a resident in Schismark and also a resident in Kasogo. But I'm, I want to try to use this to elaborate or bring um, Shakira into the conversation. When you talk about people who are either cannot return or cannot move away from um, Denmark, Shakira, in your in your view. How do you? How have you experienced this idea that you, because your fingerprint, because of the doubling, that you, with your fingerprint you cannot leave Denmark, and you cannot be deported? How has that affected you personally? Because for me, um, I have asked so many, so many times from the immigration that okay, I understand that you want me to leave Denmark. I understand that I do not have perspective of being in Denmark, but I want my fingerprint removed from Denmark so that I can move on. I can go anywhere I want to can go. I, can I jump in? That's where I would say that I've been here. This is my first country where I asked asylum, mm-hmm. and that's where I cannot go anywhere because in this country it's where the first country I asked asylum. Mm-hmm. So. If I go in other place where they are putting on me pressure when yet they deported me and they, I was rejected in my country when I went with four police people. Mm-hmm. So it makes a person to be in the trauma. It makes a person who you feel like you don't have any home. You don't have any hope. Mm-hmm. You feel like everything is uh, it's really stranded in your life. When you are confined into this uh, sort of zone of being stocked in uh, camps like Shesmark and uh, you cannot even leave or the situations in the camp there are not um, 
adequate enough for you to be able to live your everyday life or express your everyday life. I, for instance, when I was in Shesmak, we had no possibilities of cooking. We could not make our own daily food, which is a necessity in everyday life, in, a, in a every human being's life, that they can at least decide what they eat. And um, this is one of the things that, uh, one of the ways of motivating people to leave the mark, such as taking away every human right, every basic right that they have as a human being. What do you have to say to this, Shakira? Uh, I'll say that uh, they took my rights when they deported me to my country in Congo, in, in, uh, in Congo. Mm. When we reached in Kinshasa, yeah. I was forced to leave also my country with them. We were tortured. But when we reached here, they did not accept what happened in my country. Mm. And which until now I'm standing on to say that really mm. the police, they have to say the truth where they cannot come outside to say the truth. And instead of saying the truth, they are always in the cross camp. And where they put also my child, which is it's illegal to put a child who's young in the cross camp in Elbeck. It's not right to put a child in Elbeck. That brings me to the question to you, Annika. Um, mm -hmm. In the last times, we see also mainly from the West when they talk about like children's rights and the rights to protect children. In these reports, do you see any connection of sort of a hypocrisy in the sense of in one hand campaigning for the rights of children and also human rights and at the same time subjecting them to inhumane uh, practices that actually takes away the children's rights in uh, such as Thank what uh, i Shakira think is and connecting back to what shakira said i think there are two important points to raise there the first is that um exactly like shakira says the authorities are not acknowledging the problems that they are in fact uh, creating. Mm -hmm. So instead of acknowledging that sometimes deportations are not going to be possible, they blame asylum seekers, rejected asylum seekers, and their children by extension. Um, and while they accuse, actually, this is a discourse that's been used, they accuse parents for using their children to uh, obtain residence permit, but we would rather read it the other way around. So mm -hmm. the government sort of places not only um, adults, but also children in intolerable conditions as a way of pressuring parents to give up their hopes of staying in Denmark, whereas mm -hmm. parents are, of course, only trying to do their best for their children by, by remaining there. Um, so this, this attempt of sort of pushing the blame onto uh, migrants and to register asylum seekers themselves mm -hmm. is a way to deflect responsibility that the Danish government is using effectively in the case of the deportation centers. Um, and with regard to the question of whether it's a uh, hypocrisy. I think, yes, of course, this is this is what it looks like. And then I think we also, however, have to, to look at what other sort of projects and ideological conditions it is that render a place like Shelsmark possible. Mm -hmm. So while we have um, human rights conventions and also um, conventions particularly designed to protect the rights of children that yeah. um, are supposed to be universal, we see how they are very mm. unevenly applied onto mm. different populations. Yeah. Something that we wanted to show in this report, or with this report, uh, was, well, firstly, to detail how um, these centers are set up to actually make the lives of certain non-citizens, usually coming from the global south, um, usually people who are racialized and who are considered unwanted by uh, the Danish government, 
how how it's rendered possible that they are put under conditions that they would never accept for Danish citizens. Mm. And this is where we have to start looking at, you know, how different rules are put into place to govern different populations. And we can look back at, I mean, Denmark has also history, um, and Europe has a, a dark history of colonization and of um, institutional racism and of treating groups very differently. So I think when we look at how exactly how rights are applied differently to different groups, this is how we have to trace these logics. I want to ask her a question. Did the human rights for children, have they tried really to figure out how children are suffering in Shelsmark? Children they cannot eat. You find children, they are crying every day in the clinic. The child has to go, he has stomach pain. They don't eat in the cafeteria. Instead of eating that food, they just sit on the table. How can you eat food when the police people are watching you? Even though they are children, they feel that fear. They feel that torture. And now children, they understand everything in the in the society. They know what is going on in the world. Mm. Where I should ask human rights from children, they should come out and talk with the children in Shelsmark. When we are talking about this now as a motivation enhancement program, is also one of the things that the Danish governments or almost all the states are now applying when there is a very conscious policy in order to make people submit, I mean, taking away people's rights and then at the same time forcing them in this sort of way not to be able to do anything, not to participate in anything, which means the program itself is meant to take away people's rights, is meant to make children is meant to make people who are in this camp to actually not participate in, in their everyday life. And that's the main aim of the center. And at the same time, they blame the, um, the residents or the rejected asylum seekers or migrants for actually being in that center and at the same time not being able to live up to the rules that is set up in the center, which in, in the longer run incriminates them. In the in the report you write, you also talk about this motivational enhancement program that is both in place in Chels, my castle, go and Ellipic, and also how the like like as Steve just said, how the motivational enhancement programs practices easily incriminates its residents. So we wanted to ask you to elaborate on this, Annika. So I think again, I think Shakira has captured this already in what she just said uh, in terms of how people experience being stigmatized and they are subjected to constant anxiety, mm-hmm. fear of the police, fear of detention, fear of deportation, um, and also being so highly circumscribed in how they can live and go about their everyday lives. Mm-hmm. Um, the forced isolation, um, the poverty, the enforced poverty, the fact that people are not allowed to work, uh, not allowed to earn money, go to school, except for children then, but or cook their own food. All of this is designed to really um, isolate people and to, to stigmatize them. It's not a, uni- a practice that is unique to Denmark. It's mm. something that we see in a lot of different European countries yeah. um, applied in different ways. But yes, definitely. And there is also this link between, between again, this this constant anxiety. Um, so Shelsok and Kesovigod are put up for people who cannot be immediately deported, who are awaiting deportation, but who cannot be immediately deported. Um, and Elebek is then sort of a middle step in between. So we've seen in May this year, um, we saw sort of the first time that that authorities explicitly made use of Elebek as a way of putting additional pressure on people when mm. they saw that these motivation mm. enhancement measures did not work. 
they detained the eight people from Kesovigod um, to try to motivate, motivate them to cooperate with authorities in their own deportation. And so far, that has not worked. But this is really how we see the government sort of, or the authorities okay, using um, more and more of the repressive measures to um, to put pressure on people. Yeah, I want to say some little comment about uh, Erbeck. Because mm. Erbeck really is not good where you put a person to stay when he's a refugee or asylum seeker. Mm -hmm. Because it's really dangerous there. I was there twice in 2011. I was there in 2012. Mm -hmm. In 2011, they took me back to my country and I got rejected in the airport. Mm -hmm. I had to come back with them. They had to force me to sign some documents. Even the money they gave me to eat in the way to take me to my village, it was not enough. So even to support me for even three weeks or mm. one week, it was not enough. So when they brought me back, they forced me to sign the documents, which I signed without knowing, without with fear, with torture and everything which I've been through in my country. So where I think that people who are in Erbeck and in Shelsmark and children who are in Shelsmark, they are really in the bad situation mm. where they need to figure out what they can do for the children. Mm. They should bring some people to check the food which they are giving to children because the food is really totally not good. Then what is human rights for the children? So thank you. I think also what Shakira said in terms of asking people to come out and to see the conditions, and I think that's very important because, so again, one of the, one of the effects of um, these isolated camps is that this issue and the suffering and the harms done to rejected asylum seekers mm -hmm. is sort of put out of public view. So I think it's it's really important to try to render visible um, mm. the conditions that, that have been um, inf inflicted or the harms that have been inflicted on rejected asylum seekers and their children by um, by the, the Danish policies that are in place. It's also somewhat both tragic and ironic that there have been cases uh, historically um, documented where people who did not qualify for asylum did so after having spent years in Danish asylum camps and um, they were put in such a bad state um, because of this fear, anxiety, this protected waiting and all of these issues that Shakira bring up mm. so that eventually they qualified for humanitarian uh, residence permit. Mm. This really points to both this and, and, and Shakira's deportation story really mm. illustrate how the Danish um, policies in place produce more of exactly what they are supposed to curtail, that is, mm -hmm. circular movements, people becoming stuck for indefinite periods of time mm -hmm. in these centres. That was a little bit some of the interview, and um, this song was dedicated to us by Shakira, who was the person you were hearing her voice now, and uh, it says, I have nothing. And that simply expresses everything has been stripped away from me. And it's done by the society. And this is the song from Shakira. And we'll be right back in the interview in a bit. Further. I don't want to have to go where you don't follow. 
In the report, you, you also write how this motivational enhancement program uh, incriminates its residents. So I wanted to ask you if you can explain how you how you see this. Yeah. So basically, so we we understand and we use this uh, this academic term, which is called crimigration, mm-hmm. which um, which is a way to describe how not just again not just Den- Denmark, but also in other countries, we see how criminal law is merged with immigration law. Mm-hmm. Um, this means that um, as European states, including Denmark, um, step up their efforts to detain and deport 
uh, rejected asylum seekers and illegalized migrants, they are starting to use the tools of criminal law to, to do that, to both to legitimize these practices and to render them more efficient. Yeah. So we see these uh, logics being in place in two main ways in mm. the departure centers. Mm. Uh, firstly, it's the entire setup, the fact that they are uh, placed in old prison facilities mm-hmm. and military facilities. Um, that they um, they put prison guards to to guard residents, which makes no sense because these people did not commit a crime, and um, actually the authority and the um, the sort of mandates that prison officers usually have in prisons mm-hmm. are not applicable there. So it makes no sense to put them there, other than to make a very symbolic point that these are dangerous people that we want out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, even though the vast majority of residents, of course, have never committed a crime. Sorry. Secondly, when it comes to um, sort of the everyday practices and how the the rules put in place and again all the pressures put onto residents that also uh, results in uh, in people becoming criminalized and actually um, becoming sort of subjected to criminal law. So for instance we have the, um, the duty to register and to reside in the departure centers um, which uh, we now see a series of cases of in, in case of a gold where people have uh, violated this duty to reside, and they are brought to court. They're convicted to pay fines, which they cannot pay, and they risk imprisonment for um, uh, for up to a year and a half. We also see how the significant pressure put on people, uh, the mental, psychological, mm. and physical harms done to them, and the imposed poverty that uh, people experience in, in these camps, how they, that makes people, well, so yes. I do understand you? now the comments what you say I do understand because I've been through through the same situation where they went came to pick children in in Congolon mm-hmm. where I was living mm-hmm. and we came out to ask what happened why they're taking the children it was too much police and the woman was shouting the husband was shouting don't take my children don't do this mm-hmm. and we went outside to ask questions and which I have caught next month on the 8th, I think on the 8th, mm-hmm. I have the court where I have to to go to prove myself that I was not with those people who were struggling to take the children, to take the child mm-hmm. away from the police. And which is true, I was not involved with the people who were having the child in their hands. Oh. And which the police, mm-hmm. they say, I had, we had the child in our hands, we stopped them to do their job. Mm. And when the police asked me to go away, I went away, but they put the charges on me that I have mm. to go to court to answer that case. And where it's, I see that it's really not right if you want to take a child's person, you need to talk with the, that family in a good way, mm. not coming with a lot of police, a lot of people to make all the camp to come outside to ask the question, then you put the charges on the people. Mm. Mm. Now, in order to elaborate more of what you're saying now, um Shakira, I, I, I yeah. wanted to ask, one of the examples in which uh, Annika you gave is that these practices, practices in the centers usually is used against the, the residents, such as like those in Kasogona who may be due to the duties, such as like yeah. signing with the police uh, in the center yeah. there that you are not able to do. Uh, maybe you did not do, you will be charged in the court. And that enables you, or that enables the state to um, 
actually charge you with a criminal thing mm. uh, which means yeah, if yeah, you yeah. if you have not been committed any crime before in Denmark being inside this um, deportation camp or detention camps can actually then make you one of those criminals that they want to remove from Denmark I, I mean uh, yeah. uh, uh, Annika this is to you before I come back to Shakira Yes, yeah. exactly. And I think the the example of Shakira again is uh, it's such a good example because it really illustrates how people just try to cope with these conditions and um, and then they're criminal criminalized for doing something that is that is very normal. I mean, you react to someone trying to take away your children. You mm-hmm. you try to protect. You try to help your fellow residents, mm-hmm. and then you risk criminalization. Um, there are now a number of cases that was recently reported. Uh, by the ombudsman of um, uh, Syrian refugees who have been charged with um, well human smuggling after having arrived in Denmark in 2015 for mm-hmm. um, for helping relatives or for helping mm-hmm. each other to enter mm-hmm. Denmark, mm-hmm. and of course they are not likely to be able to be deported because there's an ongoing war in Syria, but um, these uh, but they, they are then criminalized for this and. Uh, put in Kesovigod uh, for an indefinite period of time. Of course, we so have seen... So it's really this sort of everyday rules and, and these everyday acts that we can all uh, commit. And then especially when you're subjected to so much pressure, you're more likely to um, to commit acts that that run contrary to or to react to the... To the um, to the pressures that are being put on you and then to be actually uh, criminally convicted for it, whereby you also then somehow ironically risk an expulsion order. Um, so we have people who uh, broke the um, this duty to register in case of a god who were now sentenced to an, to deportation and the six-year re-entry ban. Um, it does not make them more deportable because it won't change the legal situation, but it just adds to sort of their criminalization. Mm. In the report, you also write that under this um, pre-migration paradigm, one of the logics is that who is the offender is becoming more important than the seriousness of their offense. It's not so much a question. I just wanted to put it in there. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's an important point, and it relates back to sort of how is it how is it possible that we accept that some people are uh, being placed under intolerable conditions? I mean. Even even if we um, uh, symbolically criminalize people by putting prison officers in charge of the deportation centers, I mean prison officers are otherwise in charge of sort of re-socializing, rehabilitating, mm-hmm. um, helping people to a better place in life, and here they just put to guard people who are t- supposed to um, to feel to make them feel worse and and to make them expelled. Um, so. There's definitely something about who the offender is and the fact that we have mm. we, mm. we see a development of parallel systems of justice, mm-hmm. one for citizens and one for unwanted non citizens. Mm. And this is really what the crimigration um paradigm mm. um sort of brings to the fore that um not only is it that we use the the tools of um criminal justice to enforce migration control, but also we do that without necessarily giving people the the judicial safeguards and the rights that are normally associated yeah. um, with uh, mm. with the criminal justice system. Mm. So, for instance, in the deportation centers, um, the duty to reside there cannot be appealed. Mm-hmm. There is no way to contest legally or almost not politically, as it seems, um, the, de- the decision to to leave someone there because 
it's actually not a decision taken by court, but just by the immigration service. Mm. So it, this is again what we want to talk about when we talk about a, a legal gray zone. But now, I, in order to also understand this illegal gray zone, how the motivation enhancement program really works, and also what we've been campaigning all along for the rise to have rights, also this is what you mentioned in in the in the in the report. This is like for the right to have rights. But this, my next question is going to go to you, um, Shakira. Some of these practices we see in Shesmark. Uh, that actually really incriminates people in the longer run is usually like the practices of the things that happen in within Shesmark or Kasugo or the detention centers itself, such as like um, we understand that there is children, children there now and quite a lot of these children who are there cannot have uh, a normal or anybody, not just the children, but more worse for the children. They cannot have a normal life. They cannot go to school or maybe just some uh, they cannot participate yeah. in everyday life and somehow if your kid misbehaves because of these situations or complains a lot or cries a lot you as a parent you are going to be blamed for it yeah and if it's possible you will be charged for that also and the yeah. long run you might also be your kid might also be taken away from you by the state yeah. for not being able to take care of your kid your child yeah yeah yeah, I'll go to the same thing she say she said before. Anika, uh, <laughs> the same uh, thing you said before about the children. If you you don't have any right, they will be to find uh, many charges to put on a person. But here, there is children. Even parents, they are afraid even to strike, even to do something because of the situation. Since all the people, they knew that they are calling me to court and they have been listening about all this news mm -hmm. about the children which they took in uh, Congolan. Mm -hmm. And many people, they they cannot talk, they cannot do anything. It's like the government or immigration, they have just closed the mouth of the human rights. Mm -hmm. They have just closed the mouth of human beings. Mm -hmm. So... Where people, also children, they say, where can we go? Parents, we say, where can we go? My country has rejected me. Where can I go? They have took me in the embassy four times or three times. And uh, the embassy cannot give me any documents to travel with them. There are some people who are living here. They have been here for two years. They, are, they cannot take them back. There are some people who are here with their family. And nothing is happening. And immigration is not doing anything. Where they have to stand up to ask the question to the police, why this person is still here? Why you did not say the truth? Mm -hmm. Come out and say the truth. The immigration have to force them to say the truth. And ambushmen have to stand up and speak the rights of the refugees and say, mm. enough is enough. If we cannot mm. deport you, we cannot do anything. Mm. Let the person get his rights. Mm. Now, this brings me back to you, Annika, in the sense that you were talking about this gray zone and uh, people actually being in this limbo or gray zone at, for the rest of, your, of their life. In the sense that we see these things happening every day and it's part of being part of the laws in order to keep these people uh, in these sort of detention centers or deportation centers. It makes it very, very much easier for the state to... Or, the state to be able to incriminate the people or even make them more de deportable. What did, uh, what did you find? Uh, or how was it expressed? Or what, how did the research find it? 
I guess what it what it does is that it also makes it easy for the state to to just denounce responsibility for for the situation that they effectively created. Mm-hmm. Um, so just like Shakira says, sort of where where can you turn and who is responsible and who, how can you find a solution? Because obviously, putting pressure people under this amount of pressure does not make them leave. Um, in terms of sort of the observable effect on deportations, which is which is the ideal solution or the ideal outcome um, in the government's view, mm-hmm. we've seen reportedly that four people left Kersovigod and returned to their countries of origin. Mm-hmm. Um, out of the, I don't know by now how many hundred people passed through there. Mm-hmm. I have actually tried, mm-hmm. tried to also get the, the numbers from Shelsmark, but the immigration service, they don't have any numbers. So they actually don't know how many people have um well, who ended up there and for how long people stayed and where mm. they went next, which mm. is also somehow telling, I think, uh, because it really shows that as soon as as soon as soon people leave, it doesn't matter where to, they're just sort of out of sight, out of mind mm. of the government. So they really don't take responsibility. Um, yeah. Personally, I know several people who, um, uh, who used to live in the centers but now did not return to the countries of origin but are elsewhere mm. in Europe. Um, or who might still be in Denmark, but just not in the camps. And, you know, this, this situation, again, this legal strandedness, um, the deportation centers certainly don't offer a solution, but rather makes the situation more acute, I think, for people. There is one legal possibility <laughs> that authorities can use to actually grant people uh, who are who, who have nowhere to go, who are not accepted by their countries of origin, mm-hmm. uh, who are not accepted by Denmark, there is a possibility um, in the Aliens Act to grant them residence permit mm-hmm. after yeah. several years. Mm-hmm. It has not been used since 2012. Mm. This clause, according to legal advisors, so, and that that is a that is a decision. It's not that mm. law does not offer any solutions, but it's just not used. And why that is, I think we can only speculate, and I think we need to also address that question to the immigration service and to politicians. We'll be bringing you another song from Annika, and then we'll go back to the interview in a bit. And uh, this song comes from uh, Maya and Carson, and it's, it's called they don't care about us. So when we are also referring to the inhumane conditions in Shesmark or Kasogo or that of the general refugee situation and migrant situation in Europe, we do not see in any way whereby the um, government cares about these minority groups. So the next song will be coming up is called They Don't Care About Us.
we are talking about this situation now and also how much people are either put in the detention centers, the ones who either went underground and did not uh, in any way deported to the, end up being deported to their country. In, the, in your view or in the report view, do you, how do you see the connection of making these people even more vulnerable in the sense that they were maybe previously in the asylum center and had a little bit of um, dignity or sort of life, but now after being transferred into the uh, detention centers or deportation centers, it even make it makes them even more vulnerable both to the state, both to other institutions in the society, and also very vulnerable with the um, how is it called the Dublin fingerprint. How how much how do you see how desperate this actually puts people who are stateless in that sense? Yeah, I think, like you said, it, it actually de facto makes people stateless because there is no state that guarantees their, their human rights mm. and certainly not their equal rights. Mm. Um, again, where are the rights of the child and where are the rights um, to to live a dignified, a life in dignity? Mm. Um, this is not something that is, again, that is so easy to legally contest, but I think politically this is such an important point to, to raise and, and to push. How we look at it in the report is... Um, that these these deportation centers are part of uh, a politics of deterrence. Mm -hmm. um, so even though they do, clearly do not fulfill their intended function of making more people leave so-called voluntarily or to deport themselves back to their countries of origin, uh, it does supposedly then serve a function of pre preventing more people from coming to Denmark, mm -hmm. uh, showing that there is no chance you can stay here. So it really it really sort of serves populist and um, symbolic political purposes mm. um, where the government can say that we are being tough on immigration. Yeah, have you ever tried to, at least you're trying to find out the situation of people who are in the this cross camp and the deportation camp, have you tried to ask the UN to protect people who are in this situation? If it will be possible no. to ask the United Nations or any yeah, of the, Nation, yeah, yeah, the yeah. human rights organizations to actually look into the things that are happening in mm. Shesmark. Of course, I think, uh, if I might to answer that your question before Annika answers, please. 
in the past, in 2016 or 2015, we were going to the human rights organizations in Denmark, and we also explained these things to them. The ombudsman, he was in Schismark, he was in Kasogo, and um, he actually said, yes, that these things are not really inhumane, they are, they are inhumane, but at the same time, they are not... Um, it's not it's not proportionate enough to mm. condemn it as not being inhumane. So it's in his words, this is okay. This is the ombudsman of Denmark mm. making this declaration. Mm. But go ahead with the answer, um, Annika. Mm. No, thank you, Steve. I think that's a, that's a really important point that because um, it speaks exactly to this legal gray zone that it's somehow ironically not bad enough. Mm. <laughs> Um, so that it's very difficult to contest these centers mm. legally. There have been, I know that um, several actors within civil society and human rights watchdogs have um, raised, have, have had serious concerns about the conditions in the camps and the fact that people are practically confined there indefinitely. Um, I heard that the Helsinki Committee for Human Rights was supposed to send a report to the UN Committee for the Prevention of Torture, uh, just to sort of contest and to shed light on on um, uh, these practices that are ongoing. Mm-hmm. But with regards to the ombudsman and, and other sort of legal safeguards, again, it seems difficult because it does not seem to be a question of law, but of politics. Mm. So also the Danish ombudsman is appointed by the Danish parliament. Mm-hmm. And, of course, if Parliament, he's supposed to safeguard the uh, human rights of individuals in Denmark, and especially those who are in a very vulnerable position. But he answers to the Parliament, and the Parliament has decided to set up these centres in a way to make them intolerable for people. So if he goes out there to say these centres are intolerable, um, they, they're below human dignity, they're uh, you know at the very bottom of, of human rights conventions, they say, good, this is what mm. they're supposed to be. So it's really, uh, um, I think there, I guess, strategically, we need to think more in terms of mobilizing, raising awareness, mobilizing um, civil society, the way that it's also being done in some circles. I mean, we've seen mobilization for the support of especially children in Shellsmark and to try to work politically for a change. Can I tell you something? Because uh, if the children, they continue to be in this situation, the future of the child is really, really, is really not nice. It's mm. not good because the child mm. tomorrow, he's the future for tomorrow. Mm. He's the child who can fight for his rights. He's the child who can continue for high education. How a child can go to class when he have this fear, or oh, tomorrow I have mm. to be deported, or oh, tomorrow I don't have food to eat. When I reach home, I'm in fear. I'm going to hide myself in the room. When he sees somebody passing a car, they are just moving here every day without nothing, doing nothing. Why the cars for the police passing through in the camp where there is children? Why mm. they pass all over, making children to be scared? Well, I think then, this is, is this? the police do this, which is also one of the things we were complaining at the time. They do this in order to make it um, uncomfortable for residents to be mm-hmm. there. This is one of the um, program or the initiative of the uh, the enhancement program. This is what it introduced in order to create fear, in order to put anxiety into, into people so that they are forced into Ali. signing their deportation. So in the real sense... Uh, these things that are done in Shesmak, the police being there, the uh, 
the policies of the uh, criminal for some, the staffs who are there, rejecting people, the possibility to medical care, rejecting them from being able to make their own food, taking away all these rights is basically in order to make them to force them to go back home. So this is basically what it's all about. These practices we are talking about is, of course, as you also already mentioned, Annika, it's not only practices and developments we see in Denmark, but also around Europe and Western states. For us, at least here, we, we for sure see a connection between the deportation regime and this crimigration paradigm. How do you see, Annika, the findings uh, in your report in connection with these wider developments and policies in Europe and beyond? Yeah, I think we definitely, unfortunately, be, this is part of a wider European trend, uh, for sure. I think the the specific idea of behind the departure centers or the deportation centers um, is again that it sort of it sort of blurs so many different laws and cuts across so many different governmental logics. Um, so on the one hand, it's it's really a new tool that the mm. government can use in addition to expanding immigration detention. Um, working on and putting pressure on governments of um, countries of origin of rejected asylum seekers to try to make them readmit more citizens mm-hmm. and to step up sort of the so- so-called voluntary voluntary advice services. This is really one of the new configurations where they merge this uh, detention detention center and some sort of reception reception center yeah. and really pres- create this prospect of people becoming stuck there forever. So mm. just like we see in other states that currently we haven't seen any good example of uh, a state that has dealt better, I guess, with rejected asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. But instead, they, they tend to just reinforce controls and use more of the technologies that produce more of what they're supposed to curtail, which is uh, people becoming legally stranded and and stuck in these kind of situations. When we talk about children, when we talk about um, safeguarding people, protecting people so that they do not actually fall back into um, being, how will I say it, uh, exposed to exploitation, exposed into this kind of inhumane practices that we're seeing in Shismark or Castle Gold today. Uh, I remember in 2015 with the death of Alan Colin from Syria. Uh, I remember after this kid uh, was found on the shores of uh, Europe that uh, the the aim was to make a safe route for children, uh, mainly children yeah. and families. There was um, a campaign against uh, traffickers and all of that. And today, suddenly, we see that the European states are now suddenly the ones or sort of the the police for who are actually carrying out this are putting people into that uh, proportionate uh, situation so that they are actually very much vulnerable. So in, 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 with, my, with this, I wanted to ask you the question as such as, uh, for instance, we have all these policies, we have all these things, all these laws to protect children, to actually uh, make children be safe. But at the same time, when it happens to European children or some sort of acceptable children in the political view of the um, Europeans, then it's suddenly accepted that we might fight for them. But when it's not that of the one of the European kids or other kids that or minorities that we do not accept, suddenly we turn hostile against them. Please, can you um, add a little bit to this? 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a very good point that this selective the selective memory is nice or we can also call it just the selective compassion or mm-hmm. you know how humanitarian humanitarian compassion yeah. uh, that sort of many European citizens suddenly felt for this one child Alan Kurdi which mobilized immense support for uh, some incoming asylum seekers who were who were deemed deserving. Um, that does not guarantee that it applies to everyone. So it is selective. It remains selective. Um, it is not the same as guaranteeing rights. I think it's definitely important to to show the suffering and the harms that are being done by the system to uh, to children and to people who become stranded in these conditions. Uh, in Denmark, in Europe, uh, at Europe's externalized borderlands, um, where people are both prevented from entering Europe and where they are deported back to. Um, and at the same time, we have to sort of see beyond this immediate compassion that is, again, selective, um, and instead try to talk about sort of what are the what are the costs not only for, for these people, but also for our society if we start saying that, well, this child deserves to have human rights, but not that one. Mm. Um, a child who has this legal status is worth more than another child. Yeah. I think this is really where we have to start question, like asking ourselves the question of what kind of society do we want and um, what are sort of, uh, what, what political changes are necessary. Yeah. I want to ask a, a question. Does she does she ever ask ambushman ambushman I don't know ambushman I don't know what to pronounce the names for Danish Have you ever asked him what is the meaning of cooperation because here we have some people who have been cooperating with the police we have been signing for them we have been with the embassy with them we, they have been deported they brought them back and what the situation what is the meaning of cooperation can you ask him this question If I get the opportunity, I have not asked him this question, but if I get the opportunity, I will definitely save it for, (laughs) I will definitely ask it. Um, From what we know, just very briefly, uh, it is very difficult to establish. It's up to the National Border Police to decide what it means to cooperate or not. It's up to their individual judgment. And what we heard from legal advisors is that it's quite arbitrary and it's difficult to know exactly what they what they mean by it. So I think your question is really important and thank you. I'll bring it with me. So I think the government have to ask the police what is the meaning of cooperation because uh, if ambushman cannot answer this question, please take it to the parliament, take it to everywhere to know what is going on in the world. People have been cooperating, have been doing many things, going in the law and everything, following the rules and everything. But please, we need this question to come back to the refugees. We know what is going on. Thank you very much, uh, very much. I like quite a lot. Uh, but I would like to say goodbye now. And I, I would also like you guys to say goodbye. And thank you very much for having you on the program. You're welcome. No problem. Thank and you very much. And thank you, Shakira. You're welcome. Okay. And uh, we You're wish welcome. you the best on the launch of the uh, reports. And uh, the report is called You're, calling, You're Killing Us Slowly. And we ask yeah. everyone to go out there and check it out and be in it. Bye-bye. Have a great day. So before we go on to the next one, this is a song by, again, Shakira herself. And uh, this is by Lucky Dubé. And it's called Prisoner. And while we're still talking about the stop killing us slowly and the detention camp, Castle Gore and Chase Mark, 
and, and also this report, we want to also remind people that it is very, very important, very, very, very important that they try to understand what we are trying to talk about here, that detention of children, that detention of people who are only asking to, who have only fled, fled their homes and um, uh, their countries for the sake of protection, in order for to get protection, that are being detained, that this is inhumane and it's not nice and it's not good that we have to go this way as uh, humans. Southern leaves, southern trees we hung from Barren souls, heroic songs unsung Forgive them, Father, they know this not as undone Tied with the rope that my grandmother died Pride of the pilgrims, affect lives of millions In slave days, separating fathers from children Institution ain't just a building But a method of having black and brown bodies fill them We ain't seen as human beings with feelings Will the U.S. ever be us, Lord willing? For now we know the new Jim Crow The stop, search, and arrest stop souls Police and policies, patrol, philosophies of control What you just heard was an interview with uh, Annika Lindberg and Shakira. It was around the report called Stop Killing Us Slowly that is just re- being released today. In this uh, second part of this program, we will bring an uh, interview with Professor Dr. Nikita Dawan. So in this interview, we will be talking about post-colonial critique, selective memory politics, belonging, and talking this into a German um, colonial history and present, which we also want to link to the current migration, um, the rights to have rights, as we just talked about, and the deportation camps. Professor Dr. Nikita is an Indian academic and professor of political science 
um, political theory and gender studies at the University of Innsbruck. And from 2009 to 2016, she was director of the Frankfurt Research Center for Postcolonial Studies at the University of Frankfurt. Her central research areas centers on uh, transnational feminism, global justice, human rights, democracy, and decolonization. This song is made by a common and it's called Letter to the Free. And, and this song is mainly dedicated to the people in Kasogo, in Shismark, and all around detention centers around the world. And we are hoping that someday our fights are not going to be for nothing, that one day freedom is going to come, and for sure it's going to come. So we need to keep it up, even with the history that we know so far, we need to keep up the hope that change is going to come, that one day we are going to be free. And before we go to the next interview, we just want to say that this, um, in the beginning of the interview, um, Nikita Dawan talks about the, the what has been taking place in Chimnitz the last weeks. So it will be starting quite straight on this. Um, so this will be the first part of the interview. man was attacked by two uh, young men, mm -hmm. one of Syrian background and the other, I think, Iraqi, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, this Cuban-German man um, lost his life. Yeah. And then uh, this became a rallying point and mobilized a lot of right-wing groups mm. and individuals. And the irony of the situation is that actually, most probably, uh, the Cuban-German man himself might have had experiences of discrimination because he himself was a migrant. Yeah. But um, this incident kind of became uh, became instrumentalized by the right wing to once again, uh, you know, stage themselves as vulnerable to yeah. violence mm. from uh, migrants and refugees, which is quite ironical considering if you see what is happening geopolitically right now yeah. on an mm. everyday basis, hundreds of people are dying in Syria and Pakistan and other parts of uh, wherever there are conflicts happening, yeah. um, where Europe and other Western countries are making uh, billions and billions of dollars of profit mm. from uh, selling military technology mm. and uh, guns yeah. um, to people who are fighting on both sides of the conflict. And then at the same time, they, I mean, they're on the one hand, profiting from this conflict, and at the same time, they are scapegoating mm. um, people uh, from these contexts, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in other parts of the world, mm. as those who are threatening Europe and are bringing violence to Europe. Mm. Mm. And here, I think uh, it's very clear, uh, the historical amnesia, and this is not just historical amnesia, but also current-day uh, amnesia, yeah. 
where Europe stages itself as ethical, as helping refugees, as helping, you know, providing humanitarian aid. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you compare the figures, um, what European countries are earning in terms of uh, profits from these conflicts by mm. supplying military uh, technology, how uh, helpful Europe has been to people in other parts of the world. Yeah, actually, talking about that, uh, with the very example you gave now with um, the current situation going on in Germany. So in that term, since 2015, we've seen like the rise of this anti-migration uh, and also Europe presenting itself as the victim of the migration uh, flows. So, But before we go into that in depth, we would like somehow to first introduce you or you introduce yourself to the audience so that we also understand from the perspective you're talking from. Sure. So uh, my name is Nikita Dhavan, and I'm currently a professor of political theory and gender studies at mm. the uh, University of Innsbruck. Yeah. Uh, before coming to Innsbruck in 2014, uh, for six years I was a junior professor at the University of Frankfurt, mm. um, where I set up uh, one of the first uh, uh, institutes called the Frankfurt Research Institute for Postcolonial Studies, mm -hmm. uh, where we particularly devoted and focused on um, uh, postcolonial queer feminist perspectives in the German-speaking context, but also beyond. Yeah. So for a very long time in the German-speaking context, there was a resistance against postcolonial perspective mm. with the argument that Germany, uh, neither Germany nor Austria nor Switzerland were big colonial powers, yeah. and that postcolonial theory was not relevant mm. uh, for German-speaking context. Um, climate change or security crisis yeah. or one is focusing on migration and uh, refugee politics or um, um, financial crisis that many, many of the problems and challenges that we face today in the German-speaking context, but in particular, but in Europe and uh, in the world in general, worldwide in general, has, uh, so to speak, a backstory, uh, yeah. which goes all the way back to European colonialism. So, so this is this is my uh, research uh, mm -hmm. background. Yeah. And um, since 2015, of course, I mean, I've been working on issues of uh, gender and migration and uh, from a social, uh, cultural, political, economic perspective. Um, in, the, in, the, in the presentation of um, Hamad's fantasies, which translates to homeland fantasies, you, you, you talked about the entanglement of fascism and the German colonialism, and um, you brought up the genocide of the Nama and Herero people in German, in, in German former colonies, which included concentration camps, labor camps, that were experimental for what was later used during the Nazi regime. You called it the laboratory modernity. Can you explain a little bit of, uh, of this and um, connect it to what your research you, you've been doing in the past is? Germany has indeed um, done a pretty impressive job when dealing with the legacies of the Holocaust. Of course, I would say that there is always more that can be done and that should be done. However, um, in this context, I uh, like to quote uh, Salman Rushdie, who uh, in one of his novels, uh, one of the protagonists in his novel says the problem with the British is that their history happened elsewhere, which is why they don't know their you know, they don't know its meaning. And I think this is also relevant for the German context uh, because um, 
somehow there is a amnesia about uh, the legacies of german colonialism mm-hmm. and here one very good example of uh, is the uh, herero nama genocide that was committed by the german colonial government yeah. in uh, uh, present day namibia where um, the extermination order was given by the um, lieutenant general Otto von Trotter it was argued that uh, uh, germany was too brutal and was not a good role model mm-hmm. for uh, the colonial project so the british particularly argued that if one understands colonialism as a civilizing mission then we have to be good, good role models to the natives mm-hmm. and the germans were too brutal and that was one of the uh, justificatory strategies to strip germany of its colonies mm. and here i particularly draw on hana arendt's argument in the origins of totalitarianism mm-hmm. where she talks about the boomerang effect mm-hmm. so boomerang is something uh, it it's uh, Uh, you know when you throw something away and it comes back yeah. and uh, actually hana arent outlines and before i mean uh, uh, there are other scholars who have similarly pointed this out like web du bois in fizer franz fanon james baldwin who have similarly along similar lines argued that there is a very very deep connection there is a inter bovenness uh, uh, there is an interlinkage between uh, german colonialism Mm-hmm. and uh, national socialism and that many of the practices many of the strategies many of the tactics that were used by the german colonial government in um, uh, in its colonies in africa mm-hmm. like the extermination camps like the labor camps mm-hmm. um some of many of the racist laws that were introduced in the german colonies yeah. were then imported back to germany mm-hmm. and were then um, uh, instrumentalized by the fascist regime memory work and he, i i take this uh, this idea from uh, the um, the the literary scholar michael rotback yeah. who talks about multi multidirectional memory politics and he says that we need to think together colonialism yeah. and the holocaust hmm. Hmm. and just one word on uh, colonies as being modo- uh, laboratories of modernity yeah. because many of the ideas of uh, modernity were somehow put to test in the colonies yeah and um, uh, so so that which is why in post colonial scholarship one also talks about colonies as laboratories mm-hmm. where um, where where many of the experiments were done uh, by europeans and this is we are not just talking about literal experiments but also political social experiments yeah uh, eugenics uh, um uh, uh segregation um how to you know implement racial laws mm. how to do city building where uh, you know populations are segregated mm. yeah. and um, then were reimported back to europe into europe mm. um so there one sees the entanglement between the colonies and what was happening in metro uh, in the metropole just for just as a concrete example uh, if you take the um uh, the criminalization of homosexuality in uganda yeah. and the criminalization of homosexuality in india mm-hmm. both in both these contexts uh, section 377 was implemented by the britishers mm. yeah in these two very very different colonies yeah uh and uh, i very very closely related to the criminalization of homosexuality in uh, in, in britain
Europe is lost. America lost. London lost. Still we are clamoring victory. All that is meaningless rules. We have learned nothing from history. The people are dead in their lifetimes, dazed in the shine of the streets. But look how the traffic's still moving. Systems too slick to stop working. Business is good and there's bands every night in the pubs and there's two for one drinks in the clubs and we scrubbed up well. Washed off the work and the stress and now all we want some excess. Better yet, a night to remember that we'll soon forget all of the blood that was bled for these cities to grow all of the bodies that fell the roots that were dug from the earth so these games could be played i see it tonight and the stains on my hands the buildings are screaming i can't ask for help though nobody knows me hostile worried lonely we move in our packs and these are the rights we were born to working and working so we can be all that we want and dancing the drudgery off but even the drugs have got boring well sex is still good when you get it to sleep, to dream, to keep the dream in reach, to each a dream, don't weep, don't sleep, just The song we're listening to now is uh, by Kate Tempest and it's called Europe's Lost. And so now we will come back with the second part of the interview with uh, Nikita Dawan. So we wanted to hear how you see the construction of these camps and the current migration camps in the in the light of this colonial history of camps. Do you think, can we understand it, these current migration, detention and deportation camp as a product of colonial logic? So this is a very, uh, very important but also very difficult question because uh, I, I think it's, it's, one has to be always very cautious when one is doing comparisons. Mm. And every um, every uh, historical uh, every um, experience of historical violence is in its own way unique. Yeah. So as I mentioned uh, in uh, during my talk in Hamburg, that uh, I of course take the singularity pieces very seriously. Mm. When in the German context it's argued that the Holocaust was singular. I find this very compelling and convincing. Mm. Yeah. So I do not in any way want to relativize the singularity of the Holocaust by saying that, you know, uh, concentration, extermination camps are everywhere and that there is no difference between the concentration mm. camps that Nazis had yeah. um, and they are similar to the concentration and extermination camps in the colonies. Yeah. And this is what the migrants are facing. I think that this is, we have to be very cautious about making these kinds of comparisons. Yeah. Now, having said that, when particularly vulnerable groups are stripped of any right mm. to have rights. And here I'm literally quoting Anna Arendt from the origins of totalitarianism. Mm. So when a group of people are stripped of their, of their citizenship, and this is what the Germans did to the Jews. Mm. Yeah, the, the Jews were German citizens, and what the Nazi regime did was it stripped a particular group of its citizens, of its citizenship, thereby making them stateless, yeah. what it did and what Hannah Arendt analyzes very convincingly is to show that it takes away the right of this particular group mm -hmm. to be a legitimate political subject who can be understood as a bearer of rights. Mm. And this is what Arendt uh, excellently shows that it's all very well to talk about the universal declaration of human rights, that we, as by virtue of being human beings, yeah. have certain rights. That uh, we don't have to, you know, 
do anything to uh, make a claim on these rights. We, I mean, if you do a history of human rights, yeah. uh, you had to be, if you read a scholar like John Locke, he said only propertied men should have rights. If mm. you read somebody like uh, Rousseau, he says only men should be legitimate political subjects. Oh. And with the Universal Declaration of Rights, it was declared that all human beings, by virtue of being human, have certain basic rights. Yeah. And what Hannah Arendt analyzes, I'm sorry I'm giving a long answer, but I will, in a minute, connect it to the current uh, refugee crisis. Please. Um, what Hannah Arendt shows very convincingly is that when people are stripped of the right of belonging to a political community, they are made particularly vulnerable. And I think here, Hannah Arendt's ideas are very, very relevant to mm. what is being done to refugees, yeah. um, to people who are living in exile, because mm -hmm. they, by being made stateless, all kinds of protections that being a citizen yeah. ensures are, they are stripped away from. Mm. So it's all very well to talk about universal human rights, but if there is no guarantee, there's no addressee of these rights, just having these rights is an empty promise. Mm. And this is the process through which a political and legal process through which systematically uh, millions of people are being, you know, made into, to use a concept by Judith Butler and also by other scholars, uh, made into precarious populations, yeah. are made deportable, yeah. are confined to certain spaces uh, where they are stripped of basic human dignity and yeah. of their basic human rights. Hmm. And this is what these camps, um, what these camps symbolize. There one sees certain continuities and certain, um, uh, let's say, certain patterns. Yeah. If not continuities, but certain patterns historically of how groups of people are made precarious and vulnerable and how they're systematically stripped of their rights and their dignity. Hmm. Talking about that, I mean, in, in uh, one of the reports that we are also going to be focusing on, on, on today's program is going to be based on, on the findings that we are done in the detention camps and deportation camps in Denmark. And it specifically also states uh, in this um, report that the, our fight during those years is for the right to be able to have rights as human beings. For the sake that our rights has been actually been deliberately um, take, taken away by the state itself. Of course, we do not in any way compare the camps to the concentration camps that were built in, um, in Germany uh, or in Europe during the 1930s. But in many ways, we can draw similarities due to the policies that are in it, the segregation of people, the, the taking away of their rights. Uh, we find the same similarities, but this is often very confusing when we try to communicate this or try to have a conversation with the population in, in Europe. But we try to somehow to connect it for them to see the similarities. Of course, this happened many years ago. We've moved on now to another decade or many decades afterwards. The, the patterns or the, the practice has changed. They have modernized these practices of how to detain of, of, of concentration camp. They have um, modernized it. What do, you, what do you say to this? Because, of course, we do not want to 
directly compare our the current refugee struggles to that of the concentration camp before. So right now, what we are trying to actually communicate with the people is that there is it's a lot of similarities in it. And these practices also cause the same sort of genocide with, with these different groups. I mean, this, um, this issue has also been addressed by a lot of... Uh, um, a lot of people in Germany, including politicians, I mean, Merkel herself, when she, you know, um, suspended the Dublin Convention and said that Europe, uh, that Germany would open its borders mm -hmm. and let the refugees in, yeah. talked about a special responsibility that Germany had given its history. Yeah. So in that sense, she herself acknowledged that Germany uh, had, uh, uh, that the, 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 uh, the National Socialist regime, that the Nazi regime had caused um, millions of people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in, I, I mean, of course, the Jewish population was uh, 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 a, a big majority. Yeah. But there were also others, yeah. who, uh, you know, Romas and uh, uh, and other vulnerable groups yeah. who were also targeted by the Nazi regime. Yeah. And uh, Merkel herself acknowledged, and uh, other politicians also, and other uh, uh, lawmakers and legal scholars also acknowledged that that put a special um, it's a special responsibility on the German people to respond to this crisis, and of course uh, this is again something that I uh, addressed in my Hamburg talk uh, that if one takes the, um, the the norms of European Enlightenment seriously mm -hmm. of equality of freedom of emancipation of human rights yeah. of uh, cosmopolitanism of um, uh, humanitarianism. Then, of course, um, although Europeans proclaim and celebrate European enlightenment as one of the biggest accomplishments of Europe, yes. they have consistently and systematically been the biggest abusers and betrayers of enlightenment values. Mm. Yes. And this is something that was addressed uh, very convincingly by scholars of the Holocaust uh, studies. So post-colonial studies, insofar as indebted to Holocaust studies, mm. in showing how although Europeans celebrate and proclaim uh, the en Enlightenment values, they have also been in the past and continue to be the biggest betrayers mm. of uh, the Enlightenment values. So on the one hand, they talk about you know, international law and they talk about uh, human rights. And on the other hand, um, and this is something that uh, uh, is very well illustrated with what happened in the aftermath of the sexual assault um, in Cologne, mm. where there was talk of deporting refugees mm. uh, to conflict zones. And this goes completely against the Geneva um, Convention, Convention of, uh, and, and the clause of no refoulement, that you are not allowed to deport people back to conflict zones where it's clear uh, that uh, their lives will be threatened. Mm. So this is just one very concrete example of how... Um, if I may say provocatively, yeah. uh, Europe seems to be absolutely doesn't have the capacity and the ability and the will to learn from its historical mm. crimes mm. and its failures and its mistakes. Mm. So in that sense, I would say that there are there seem to be certain continuities, despite its you know we could we could give it the benefit of the doubt, despite its proclamation of doing memory politics, despite his proclamations of putting up monuments mm -hmm. and memorials everywhere yeah. um, of, the, you know, 
of promising that this kind of historical violence will never happen. Yeah. But the tragedies that are unfolding at the border in Europe mm-hmm. shows that, uh, I mean, is a, is a proof of the inability, the incapacity and the unwillingness of Europeans to learn from its historical crime yeah. mm-hmm. and its historical failure. And it's continued betrayal of European enlightenment. So I always say that in certain ways, refugees and migrants are agents of decolonizing Europe. Mm. And they are the reminders, uh, they remind Europe about uh, its commitment to enlightenment values. Um, yeah, so in some ways, the refugees are making Europeans into ethical subjects. Yeah, because you also talked about um, the, the, so the, the, the uh, aspect of refugees being the direct effect of colonialism, uh, not just on the refugees, that in, in highlight of what is going on in Europe today, that this is the direct of the actions in other places. And somehow we have tried to communicate to them to say, well, we cannot, we are not going to be in Europe if you were not in our own home countries. If you have not intervened in many of the things that are there and made it more worse. So you're absolutely right when you point out that uh, um, the, uh, the, uh, the inability mm. and the unwillingness of Europe to acknowledge its own responsibility in causing uh, distress, mm. uh, violence, you know, uh, suffering on an unprecedented level uh, globally. Yeah. And this is not just about conflict and war, because this is something that I, it, it gets focused on a lot, you mm. know, uh, how uh, wars are multi-billion dollar profit-making, uh, is a multi-billion dollar profit-making industry, yeah. but also something like climate change. Yes. In, in third world countries, cannot continue to live where they are mm-hmm. because they don't have access to clean drinking water, they don't have access to uh, fertile land, mm-hmm. they just cannot sustain themselves. They just cannot survive. So, in a way, um, they don't have the right to stay. They don't have the possibility mm-hmm. of staying where they want to stay. Mm-hmm. Forgetting mm-hmm. that they are causing people the migration. To, uh, to, to flee. Yeah. Not only because of conflict, not only because of war. Uh, in the last 40, 50 years, where Europe has systematically made decolonization impossible mm. in the newly independent countries. Now, very often when I present these arguments, um, I get, uh, you know, I get very angry responses where they say, you know, you can't blame Europe for everything. Yes, and yes. it's true. <laughs> it is true. I will, I will also blame the elites in post-colonial context yes. because they have been the ones who have profited from decolonization. Mm. So the transfer of power from European colonizers to native elites mm has not uh, led to the emancipation and betterment of lives for the majority of people in, uh, in the post-colonial world. Yeah. And this, is, this again has a historical background to it. Native elites in India profited from colonialism. And I also allowed that to happen. And of course, allowed that to happen because it was profitable yeah. for them. There are native elites in third world countries, in the post-colonial world, who are profiting from these uh, exploitative structures, economic, social, political, uh, cultural, ex- culturally exploitative structures. Mm. And if we want to find a long-term sustainable solution, mm. and again, it's, uh, uh, the refugee crisis is only symptomatic of larger 
challenges mm. that we are facing globally yeah. whether it's about food sovereignty whether it's about uh, you know conflict whether it's about uh, climate change if we are looking for this for long term enduring sustainable solutions to global problems then we have to very very urgently address issues of economic political um Um, uh, social and cultural injustice globally. Okay. And just blaming refugees for this—that you know they are—they—they uh, uh, they are just uh, you know trying to get to Europe and uh, fail to assimilate—is because this is just an easy way out for the Europeans to blame the victims mm-hmm. without recognizing their own how their own role in causing these uh, these. extremely extremely uh, you know difficult and violent uh, legacies of colonialism talking about um, the crazy uh, policies that is being made by many of the EU um, governments this time we're talking specifically on Denmark uh, the detention of children and we are saying and this song is mainly dedicated for this issue which is many strict pictures which is called if you tolerate this your children will be next and we want the 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 people to understand the common citizens to understand that if they allow such injustice to happen around them their children will be next as you'll be hearing for our next um uh, some our next uh, talk is going to be about some of the things that we are done in the colonies and that are being practiced here today so if you allow such things to happen do not forget in a few years time you might be seeing it done to your own children In your in your talk, you also introduced this the concept of hostility, hospitality. I'm not sure I'm saying it right now. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it's hosti- hospitality. Hospitality. So, uh, yeah, exactly. That talks about how European hospitality has an element of hostility in it. Mm. The refugees themselves, even though they call them, um, uh, how is it called? Um, visitors or people who are just 
they are welcoming. There is some sort of unwritten un, un rules for these um, refugees or migrants that if you do break the laws within the state, then you are excluded. You will be automatically that deported or put into detention. And that already incriminates you. But already before we came, these laws are somehow made in order. I mean, you cannot live your everyday life without falling as a victim that you, where you will be, become a criminal or result into a criminal and then be deportable. Like I will give you an example now with the detention centers we have in Denmark, specifically one called Schismark and Kasogo. Uh, this, the practices here are mainly to put people there and the, the people who are re rejected asylum seekers. And during the time, I, 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 we say 80 to 70% of people who have been there during the years, they have never committed a crime. But by the time they get into the center, the um, policies inside the center makes it very, very difficult that you cannot break the laws uh, that is inside the center. But somehow if you break the laws inside the center, that automatically makes you chargeable uh, uh, with the state. And that already makes you a criminal in the German, uh, in the in the Danish in the Danish state, and you are already um, more deportable or forcefully deported. So, how do you connect this with this uh, assumption of um, hospit hospitality and um, belonging? So, again, a very very important and very very uh, uh, urgent question because. What what is very very interesting to note here is how, um, particularly in the German context, we are not we are not uh, denying that there was a huge effort from civil society actors yeah. to you know um, uh, to uh, to show solidarity mm. with the refugees, welcoming refugees yeah. with food, with soft toys, with uh, blankets. Which, of course, is commendable. Yes. Similar, you know, to what happened in Chemnitz, where uh, just yesterday there was a concert where more than 50,000 mm. people turned up um, uh, for the anti-racist concert, concert to send a very strong message to the right wing mm. uh, that they were, they were in solidarity with the refugees. Mm. Yeah? So there one has to acknowledge the effort by the Europeans towards hospitality. Now, what I find so instructive uh, with Derrida's intervention is that he shows how fickle these proclamations of solidarity are because they are so short-sighted. Yeah. The moment, uh, which is very likely, like you already pointed out, that there is a systematic um, structural um, probability mm -hmm. given the circumstances in which the refugees last, uh, uh, sorry, the, the refugees land, that uh, they will be very, very quickly criminalized mm. by the um, uh, by the institution and I'm, I'm not trying to in any way um, you know argue that this is inevitable but the circumstances make it almost impossible for people not to be criminalized yeah one simple example of that actually was we have one of the women who lives in these um, detention centers and um, in these detention centers, the kids that are there now, now it's uh, a center for both um, families and children. And in this center, the, the everyday life is actually constructed in order for you to take away your everyday um, 
ability to be able to take care of yourself, such as being able to make your own food, being able to feed yourself, take care of your kid, um, give your kid a normal life that they would have. It was difficult for me as a grown-up man. Uh, I don't know how these kids are going to be um, coping now. But yesterday she actually complained about that the state or the uh, municipality are charging her not to, because she cannot be able to take care of her kid. But they forget yeah. that the circumstances and the laws that is in this center makes it very, very impossible for her to be able to take care of her kid. I, I mean, the kid cannot go back, uh, go to school. They cannot participate in everyday life. Of course, these children become very much frustrated and cry all the time, which, of course, the blame goes to the mother. And then these, the states are now demanding in, to take away the kid because she's not um, capable of taking care of the kid. So Absolutely. It's a, it's a very good example, and thank you for sharing it. It's a very good example of how, um, on the one hand, they talk about you know European states, European politicians, European social workers, European civil societies, constantly talking about human rights, humanitarianism, humanity. And on the other hand, they're constructing structures where, where, where it completely dehumanizes people. What, what makes us humans is completely stripped away from them. Mm. They're completely dehumanized. And then, uh, then they are shocked when, you know, uh, people who are in very different... And I don't want to pathologize refugees, but of course they come from... Ex- they have had extremely traumatic experiences mm. of violence. Yeah. Uh, and then when they, uh, in order to survive, in some ways... Um, react to the circumstances and then they are criminalized. Yeah. This is that's what I am trying There's to say. There's a complete inability to look at the structures which make impossible for refugees to function as humans. Mm. And here I find there are a lot of very, very important concepts that have been presented. I mean, I mentioned Judith Butler's precarious life. Um, there are other concepts like bare lives disposable mm. lives, mm. Uh, you use the concept of deportability, how certain people, vulnerable people are made deportable. Yeah. Uh, and it, these are very, very helpful concepts to understand how particular bodies are really, I mean, how they are made so vulnerable that they can, they, they are really on the edges of survival. Yeah. Now, talking about that, you also said, uh, it, it, of course, the right wing or the government, they take upon these things many of the times, mainly when this uh, population of refugees, and I have to say, very the minority of the population, actually commits a crime. Then it's used as Absolutely. a... Absolutely. Propag- Absolutely. So this, this is where, you know, the uh, continuities of racist stereotypes of racist narratives comes in very well. Mm. And this is what I, again, highlighted in my talk. Um, that the stereotype of the black rapist or the, you know, stereotype about Arab masculinity or Muslim masculinity mm. and the construction of the rapable white woman. Yeah. These tropes are again and again mobilized. Uh, these extremely racist tropes are again and again mobilized mm. to stigmatize an entire mm. group of people. Mm. Um, and to, in a certain way, justify... Uh, imperialist, colonial uh, policies in the name of protecting our women or protecting our society from these threatening, dangerous men or groups or uh, classes. 
the state has systematically cut back on domestic, uh, you know, whether it's counseling, whether it's um, shelter homes. Yeah. And now suddenly, after the sexual assaults in Cologne, even the most conservative, conservative German politician has become a feminist. Mm. <laughs> And talks about, you know, rape laws and uh, uh, reforming rape laws and putting up fast-track courts mm. um, uh, to, you know, deport refugees mm. who have been accused of any kinds of crimes. Mm. And there one sees a very selective politics, you know. Thousands yeah. and millions of people are being killed by the uh, policies put into place, whether it's economic policies or uh, uh, military policies put into place by the West, and uh, here one also sees um, how thousands of lives, lives can be lost elsewhere and they are not grieved. Hardly people talk about what is happening in Yemen, what is happening in other parts of the world. But when it happens on German mm. territory, when it happens in Europe, when, uh, when you, so here one sees the, you know, how certain lives yeah. are grievable. Again, I'm mm. drawing on Judith Butler yeah. uh, and her arguments in precarious lives and other lives are not mourned. Mm. They can, these people can be killed without, you know, uh, anybody batting an eyelid. And there one sees the, uh, the, the double standards mm. and the hypocrisy of the Europeans. And yeah. it, again, I will come back to its commitment to European enlightenment. Mm. So maybe just the final uh, question before we sure. round up. It's, um, of course, we talked about many <laughs> things, um, but how do you, what would be your advice to activists um, of how to fight against uh, these many racist developments that we are talking about. And also how to... Well, I I wouldn't be arrogant enough to give advice to the activists <laughs> because they are the people from whom I learn. Yeah. Um, uh, there is a wonderful uh, insight by the communist uh, uh, thinker and, uh, and scholar called, uh, Antonio Gramsci and he says the class which is the slowest to develop are the, uh, are the intellectuals. Mm. Because thinking takes so much time. Mm. So I would certainly say that uh, um, the activists are the ones from whom uh, we are learning um, and who are, so to speak, role models for us. I'll bring up a term that I used earlier, have a multi-directional perspective. Mm. We need to constantly remind Europe and Europeans about its past and hold them accountable and responsible. Mm. At the same time, We have to also be able to um, exercise self-critique. Mm. We have to also see where um, well, vulnerable groups like refugees, like migrants, where they can also exercise agency, mm. but also be able to critique the kind of dynamics and politics that has been happening within their groups also. Mm. So as we know, there is widespread violence also um, in uh, refugee communities. And of course, we know that also, this is what we discussed uh, 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 just, just, just now about the circumstances in which they land being very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, one should, one should also be cognizant of the violent dynamics in these contexts also, mm. of leading dignified lives mm. in extremely, extremely undignified circumstances. Mm. Oh. And we have to be careful, and this is really a challenge, neither to victimize refugees, nor to heroize them. Because there is also a tendency 
to you know that we have talked a lot about criminalization of refugees particularly refugee men mm. we have to also be careful not to heroize them mm. to romanticize them mm. because then you know if if you think that they are doing everything right then there is no possibility of self critique also mm. yeah that's true and so so one has to also um somehow strike a balance between victimization and heroization given the current refugee crisis i mentioned antonio gramsci i think we need to practice uh, pessimism of the intellect and um optimism of the will so we have to expect the worst um because given the current rise of right wing um populist uh, uh, movements uh, we should not la- lose sight of our hopes and our utopias for the future mm. and our solidarity with vulnerable populations and it's not just in europe but also globally that's uh, it's been amazing having you uh professor Nik- nikita and um we are very happy to have you in this program and we are looking forward to more other discussions with you at some other time are also around um gender and migration thank, thank, you, very thank you very much and also you to um keep your good work up <laughs> we also thank get you. a lot of inspiration from you thank you so much thank uh, you steven anna right. okay. thank you it from us today and um, we are at the end of our program today and this is the bridge radio you're listening to and the song you're listening to is unchained um jungle freedom and this is what we are asking for that is what we are asking that the states are able to give to the people who are fleeing war and that brings me to the end of our program today this is the bridge radio you're listening to and you've been listening to the uh the report we are trying to unveil which is the stop clean us slowly from the slogan of the castaway souls of Shismark and that of the struggling castle so to this end i will say thank you very much to our listeners and also to every of uh, every individual who made it possible for this program today to be possible such as like the people we had in the interviews thanks to uh, Shakira thanks to Nikita thanks to uh, Anika and thanks to my other fellow hosts who made it very much possible Nana and also the studio who made it very much possible and you the listeners we also want to say thank you very much for listening today and um, stay tuned into our next program and as i said this is Steve you've been listening to and i hope 
today's program somehow made things much enlightening for you and we ask you also to go out there and look at this um, report that is out and also be very much aware of the current situation please we are asking that people show humanity in this in this current situation that is being unfolding in europe and around the world and stand up for the rights of uh, minority groups call it refugees call it uh, muslims any minority group that has been oppressed in the society we really have to think consciously now i so said thank you very much and um, we'll be leaving you here in the, the from from the bridge radio and have a blessed day Harassing. Imagine going to court with no trial. Lifestyle cruising blue behind the waters. No welfare supporters. More conscious of the way we raise our daughters. Days are shorter, nights are colder. Feeling like life is over. These snakes strike like a cobra. The world's hot, my son got knocked. Evidently, it's elementary. They want us all gone eventually. Trooping out of state for a plate. Knowledge, if coke was cooked without the garbage, we'd all have the top dollars. Imagine everybody flashing, fashion, designer clothes. Lacing your click up with diamond rolls. Your people holding dough, no parole, no rubbers. Going raw, imagine law with no undercovers. Just some thoughts for the mind. The Bridge Radio. 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 Radio